This is Jamie Dyer welcoming you to another edition of the Quocast. And I'm joined by Andrew, who has been on the podcast um, before some time ago. Thank you so much for joining in again. Um, how have you been? Yeah, doing well, thanks, Jamie. How are you? I'm not too bad, thanks. I'm I'm bowled over by this new discovery um, that has happened, and I've already talked about it on the podcast. Um, the previous episode that came out, I gave my thoughts on it. Um, status quo on the midnight special in 1974. This brand new clip that has surfaced um, via the official midnight special account i can't believe that they they did it because for um the u.s quo are essentially just matchstick men mm. yeah yeah it's quite the contrast between matchstick men and big fat mother exactly i i did see a couple of comments that were like that's wildly different from matchstick men it's like well that's literally only about five years um which isn't really that difficult to think because if you think about a band like the Beatles um, that had like a seven-year period completely different going out than they were going in yeah I guess it's that back then you know they're churning out records with albums once you know one a year two a year whereas these days it's much more spread out so um, five years um, although it's only five years it's a garget it's a long length of time for that time for the progression to happen yeah definitely and i think what we see in this clip is a, a kind of it's a transition isn't it this is before the live album this is before rocking all over the world this is before the really big commercial success that quo mm. would achieve in the mid to late 70s um what what were your thoughts on it when you watched it I think it was interesting to see that it was Big Fat Mama. I saw someone commented, and it was a, an astute comment, that Hello, obviously, is the album before this clip. Um, the Quo album, I think, comes out a month later. So you'd be expecting, I guess, either Caroline or Roll Over, Lay Down from Hello. Um, we probably all love 4,500 times, but that's not going to happen. Or something from the Quo album. If it's going to be an album track, then Backwater, otherwise Break the Rules. So it's interesting that it's from Piledriver, and rather than, I guess, Paper Plane as a single or Don't Waste My Time, which is um, that so familiar Quo groove and Francis on vocals, that they've gone for Big Fat Mama, which it, it's an outstanding track. We all love it. Um, it wouldn't have been the obvious one when you hear there's a clip on the Midnight Special. I don't think they picked it. I think that was an American producer who sat through three or four of their songs and went, that one with all the different changes in it mm. that makes it interesting. And you can tell, I, I mean, we, we'll talk about Rick's vocals in a minute because sure. they are sort of a point, but um, they would have done rehearsals beforehand because the camera work and the cuts between everything is flawless. Mm. absolutely flawless if you told me that this was a promo video rather than a tv appearance um i probably would have believed you it's, it's just seamless the cuts and and the different variety from behind the kit and straight on to alan and and you know focusing on the fretboards and stuff i mean mm. they must have had at least two cameras yeah i'd imagine so it was as you say it's it's so well done 
Extremely. Um, Rick's voice. Were you surprised like I was when you're like, oh, wow, they're going into Big Fat Mama. Wow, this, this is brilliant. And then Rick's voice in the first verse is fine. You're like, okay, a little bit hoarse, but, you know, it's, it's good. You know, it's, it's classic Rick. I've, I've heard him do better, but it, it's, it's serviceable. Once he gets to that second bit, you're like, something isn't quite right. And I wonder if it's, I mean, on um, Francis has been saying recently on the Tunes and Chat tour about how, and in the songbook, about the kind of, uh, he does that sort of fist up and go, Rock! and you sort of think of that time as Rick's developing as a songwriter and still doing some of the um, more ballady tunes, things like um, Lonely Man or whatever, but also developing the kind of rock persona. I, I wondered if he's just trying so hard for the American audience that then the voice is strained. Um, otherwise, it's one, is it, you know, after, a f- if they've done a few rehearsals, is it just, is it, is the voice just got a bit hoarse or, um, or just what's happening there? Because it, it is strained. Um, still a great performance, but a, a lot of people have commented of it's not Rick at his absolute peak, which um, vocal wise he gets to. But in terms of playing, he knocks oh. it out of the park. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Just, it's a, yeah, the raw power. If you wanted to take that sort of what quo in their hardcore variety is like, that's the sort of, you want to show that footage. Um, someone commented, I think, on one of the articles I read around sort of 2.50 and when they come back in, after the uh, sort of noodly tuneful bit when they just come back in and it's you it's all pumping and firing it's just like yes there we go and if rick's vocal had been up to strength i think that would have been extremely powerful i mean it musically it was powerful anyway because coming into that boogie section i mean there's no other band that really does it quite like that mm. yeah it's just um yeah, I haven't got much else to add. It, it it is just the power, the boogie, the that sort of section. It's just on fire. Yeah, but what what I loved about this performance was it wasn't just about Rossi and Parfit. Mm. It's about the other two as well. You get to see um, Alan doing fingering technique, and you you get to see the the um, the thoughtful process on John's face, and he's doing fills that i didn't even realize he does on that song yeah i think that's a really good point with um with that camera work it does if you're new to the band you don't just think oh and of course they would people wouldn't at the time because it's 74 so it very much is the frantic four but sort of x amount of years on we like it or not people do think of quo in terms of rossi and parfit and then i think the frantic four reunion of 2013 and 14 helped redress the balance on them as a four I remember seeing them in 2013 and that's when you really didn't know where to look because it was all four as a whole band. And I think the Big Fat Mama clip is exactly that. So the fretboard um, work of Alan, which the camera focuses on, is really pleasing, but it doesn't just pan to Francis or Rick. It's great to see what, what Alan's doing on the bass there. And as you say, the fills that uh, John Coughlin's doing, um, I'm, no, I'm no drummer, but <laughs> you know a feel when you hear it, you think that is some good, good work there. And, and he's really going for it. Oh, definitely. And and I think that's the difference that you and I and other fans are used to seeing them on British TV shows where in those days they mimed. 
Mm. Um, and th- that is, I think, the difference. That's why you're getting so much energy. Because if you think about it, whenever they performed on top of the pops, they weren't going to give it that much, mm. you know, completely full on. Because what you got was the live show experience, but with actual TV lighting. Yeah. Yeah, and you could tell from the end that... Um the crowd reaction there's a live it seems like it's a live studio audience and they've absolutely just gone nuts for it as you'd imagine because it is just a hundred percent unfiltered it's not that kind of um they always seem to enjoy the top of the pops thing but you know miming for it you, you can't artificially recreate when you're miming that sort of live feel but when it's live it's live and um yeah they've absolutely gone for it it did make me pine a little bit though that if only the management had badgered um bob harris to get them on the old gray whistle test because i oh. think this is what this is right they they went on there in 76 just as an interview and then you can't help thinking if they'd got them on there in the mid 70s that is what you would have seen and they would have tore the roof off of the place where they filmed it yeah i think that like you, it, it makes you think, okay, we've got the stuff from, I think it's um, Wembley in 74, Madrid 75. Um, and it makes you think, well, if this is out there, what else could be? You think of, I, I think it was said that some of the old footage, um, early 80s and 70s was lost in a fire, I think, in terms of some VHS stuff. You think, well, but suddenly they're finding stuff. So the clip from Dortmund, the half an hour, 35 minute um, Dortmund stuff from 82, which is absolutely superb so it kind of just gets me thinking a bit of what else is out there find it especially with the um improvements people are able to make on footage it's fantastic yeah and i think you're fine with the midnight special clip i realize that people are asking if there is more because on a show like that you'd perform two or three numbers Mm. now obviously they were only featured once and you do wonder why, considering most artists, I think, did two or three songs. Um, maybe there's some footage in the back of a, a shed somewhere. <laughs> you know, may, maybe so. Um, but I don't think that's likely at this mm-hmm. point. I think we should just be thankful that that even exists. And the Wembley 74 clip, I think, was one. it's one of the earliest examples of quo post um sort of 1970 trying to find their sound you know it's the first example of peak frantic four quo um Mm. but it's very dark yeah it's very dark it's very atmospheric and obviously um the thing that comes to mind is during big fat mama in that wembley gig where rick's got his head down and he's just banging away at his telecaster and in some ways uh, I think that was recorded maybe a few months after Midnight Special. So it's mm. kind of interesting to see see him do that. I mean, maybe if anyone who saw Quo in the 70s will know that was just part of their stage act. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's one of those of, we, we know it's true, we've seen the footage, um, but you and I don't know it firsthand but there are others who can regale us and will regale us with the tales of what it was like in 74 at the empire and that sort of stuff exactly i mean this this is an astonishing piece of footage um that has come out and it goes alongside do you think it changes the narrative of quo in america 
Oh, that's a good question. I, it always seems for me there's two prongs to the American narrative. There's the one of, you know, they've been successful in the UK and the kind of don't want to have to go back to the sort of going back right to the drawing board to build yourself up in America and the work that needs and have to get the American management, but they don't get the American management. But also it seems like they had some rotten luck. Um, uh, if I remember correctly, they might have been on the bill with Fleetwood Mac when it was the fake Fleetwood Mac who were headlining and all the shenanigans around that. Um, Francis tells the story, I think, about um, they're on the bill with Aerosmith and got on really well with Aerosmith, the band, but the management hated what that the reaction quo were getting and um, so put them down the bill rather than up the bill. So it always, with America, seems... a and that just seems to be the narrative ever of, okay, they've gone down a storm like it sounds like they did on these gigs when they're on the bill, but it just never quite worked out. Um, so for me, it kind of reiterates the second part of the narrative of, uh, you were going down a storm, but it just didn't quite happen. And it would have changed their music and not necessarily for the better. Um, I, I think that's probably the, the positive spin on it, that you wouldn't have had the great albums afterwards they would have been pandering even more to that american market i mean obviously rocking all over the world and and the following one are very america focused in their sound but i always found with those they're always about two or three years out of date with the trends mm. i think it's a point i know you had um greg harper on and i think it's in his book in quote in the 80s he makes that point of actually well, they've gone after the trends. They're, they seem just a little bit out. And I think that's true of the Rock Low, the World album and the Heat album. Um, but I guess it's interesting because that's when we tend to think of Quo trying to hit the Americas or some of the stuff on Army or Eight Complaining or Perfect Remedy. But then that's why that's when you think, but it was Big Fat Mama they played. So did the Americans actually want the more harder edge rather than the kind of more sophisticated um production I, I i don't know and that that for me is an interesting kind of thought experiment of that's very we all interesting. thought it was going down one way but maybe it could have gone the other you just wouldn't have imagined them playing big fat mama on national television in america mm, exactly you know that seems like a really odd choice but if you're going to make a statement i mean growing up i used to think all Quo need to do is go on BBC One at 7 o'clock and bang out 4,500 times and everyone in the world will be a Quo fan. And it turns out that they did it in America um, mm. pretty much, you know, with one of the harder songs and live. Um, yeah. But, yeah, that, it, it does change the narrative, as you suggest, and other bands. I mean, I was reading bits in the biographies earlier in research for this, and they said they pulled out because other bands were going hard on it. And they realized, well, we, we need to just cut our losses and, you know, stick to playing the, the big gigs in, in the UK and around Europe. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, I think, I think, and I can understand that of actually, if you've made it, you know, in Europe as they did, then to have to then go back to the drawing board and back to bases, that can just seem a bit dis spiriting and um and then when you have to change your style I, I was watching an interview about a year ago i think of um lemmy and he was talking about to an american audience about slade and how actually you know they changed a lot for um trying to reach the american audience it never quite happened that said some of slade's more 
Americanized stuff like um, Ooh La La in LA, which is just a funny song, but also just an absolute banger of a tune. Um, I love that sort of stuff, but you can see it's a far cry from what got them to the top in, in the UK. So uh, it's difficult of the moves you need to make, the timing, the management, how much you're prepared to put into it. Um, that's tricky. It's been great to talk to you about this. I mean, what, it's it's available to watch on the Midnight Special YouTube channel. Go and watch it because if they get enough views, they might just think, well, we, we'll see if we've got some film in the shed, you know, of them. Because, you know, we haven't told anybody for 50 years, but, uh, you know, we, we actually got them to play 20 minutes of 4,500 times and we just <laughs> we just can't be bothered to edit it. You know, you'd never know. You never know with this stuff because it's basically been a poster on everybody's wall for the past 49 years and, and um, sleeves in singles. So to actually see the video and see what it actually was and in such great quality is refreshing. Um, thank you so much, Andrew, for joining me. Pleasure. No, thank you, Jamie. And I, I like your thinking about uh, getting the views and see what happens. Mm-hmm.